0: Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Erica Slater, and today I am joined by Amy Gunn, Elizabeth McNulty, Megan Crow, and Mary Simon. And today we are going to break down what seems like a dry topic, agency, agency, in litigation. And we actually have some pretty funny stories to share about that. So let me start with a little bit of background. Agency issues are referring to issues in litigation where someone is working as an employee or an agent of someone. Those are actually separate concepts. If you are an employee of someone or a company, you are usually paid directly by them. They're are some analysis that we go through beyond just evidence of who pays you, as in who controls your work, who provides you the things that you need to do your work, things like that to determine who someone's employer is, because it's not always clear cut. The concept of agency is when someone is acting as an agent on behalf of a principal, and that can encompass a lot of different situations um, that we find in our everyday lives. So that can be a contractor working for someone. It can be um, someone hiring another person to do services or a company hiring another outside person to do services for them for a certain fee. That can be someone acting as an agent where a formal employment, relationship is not established, um, they would be acting as an agent. So not only is it a question of if someone is an employee of a company or a person or an agent of a company or a person, but the question is if they are acting within the course and scope of that agency or employment. And that's a fancy way of saying were they on the job when whatever happened, happened. So this is an important analysis that we all go through at the beginning of many different cases because if you are working as an employee or agent for an employer or principal and you injure someone, then that employer or principal is on the hook for your conduct. Now, often there are insurance policies that are taken out by the company or the principal to insure against any lawsuits if their employees or agents do injure someone while they're on the job. And those insurance policies cover a lot of things like normal negligence and often don't cover things like punitive conduct. But in that analysis, if you are looking at negligent conduct of an employee or agent, you also have to decide if it's in the course and scope, meaning you know, I'm an employee at the Simon Law Firm. If I'm driving to a deposition and I get in a car accident, that's usually going to be in the course and scope of my employment because that trip was necessary necessary because of my job. If I am going to meet my friend for lunch in the middle of my work day and get in a car accident, that is likely not going to be related to my employment because that is on my own time and kind of a exception, a legal exception to when an employer or principal might be responsible for their agent's conduct. That's called the coming and going rule. So this is a lot of legal ease that leads us up to a couple examples that we want to share with you because our firm has been very closely involved in litigating the agency issue in the courts in the medical malpractice context, which Amy's going to explain today. And um, that has changed not only in the law, but in the legislature as well. In Missouri and Mary and I are going to share with you a recent case that we had as far as a common house cat being the uh, deciding factual turn key in the case. (laughs) So Amy let's start with the Jefferson case that you handled and if you could just tell us a little bit about the specific agency issues in that case and also kind of tee up for us how agency works differently in medical malpractice and in Missouri specifically? Okay, first I'll just say
2: that my heart is broken that I don't get to do the cat (laughs) analysis and the cat story, because as you all know, and maybe some of our listeners know, I love cats, (laughs) love them. So (laughs) I'll leave that to you, that glory goes to you. But with Mm -hmm. respect to agency and employment in medical malpractice cases, we're gonna go back in time, a little, little historic analysis, It used to be in the good old days that physicians who worked at hospitals were considered agents of the hospital. So if you went to the hospital and you needed care in the emergency department or you needed any imaging done, a CT scan or an MRI or an X-ray, or you needed surgery, the care that you got at the hospital would largely be done by a physician. And whether that physician was actually an employee, a W-2 employee of the hospital really didn't matter, as long as you could prove that the hospital had control over the ability of that doctor to work in the hospital. Hospitals are governed by uh, JCO. Now, it's commonly referred to as the Joint Commission. And that really is the vehicle by which hospitals get paid by the federal government. So you can see why this is critically important and why hospitals follow joint commission rules very closely. And part of the joint commission rules involves credentialing of physicians. Hospitals have to undertake analysis to determine whether a physician is competent and qualified and trained and educated to provide care to its patients. Doctors have to be privileged at the hospital. They have to be a member of the medical staff before they can see patients. So in the Jefferson case, it involved a woman who had a CT scan done of her abdomen after giving birth to her first child. And it was reviewed by a radiologist who was not employed by the hospital, but her radiology group had an exclusive contract with the hospital to do all of the reading of films for that hospital. Now, my client had the CT scan, there were a series of them, uh, had the CT scans done at the hospital, had no knowledge of who or which radiologist was actually reading her scans. It didn't matter to her. She would just show up at the imaging center at the hospital, get her scan, go home, and be told of the results, typically by the ordering physician, which was her gynecologist. So that negligence involved the radiologist misread uh, the CT scan and did not note a mass under her pancreas, which turned out to be colon cancer. Because that mass was missed by that radiologist, it was allowed to grow and advance to stage 4 Long story short, unfortunately, my, my client passed away during the pendency of the litigation. We had started that suit before she passed away and continued it for her minor children. So
1: Amy, when you were analyzing who you needed to sue in that case, what factors were you looking at to decide who were included as defendants under the agency analysis?
2: Well, at that point, it was very easy. You sued the hospital and the physician because the care happened at the hospital and the physician you sue because they're the ones that misread it. So, as again, as that litigation began, it was an easy choice to sue the hospital and the doctor. The hospital then files a motion to, I think, for summary judgment because the legislature had passed a law, Missouri legislature had passed a law saying that hospitals are not responsible for the actions of physicians who aren't employed by the hospital. So basically erasing the idea of agency. And Erica, as you introduced at the top, there's your principal and an agent. You don't have to be a W-2 employee. You only, your actions have to be controlled by the principal. In this case, the actions have to be controlled by the hospital. So that's the analysis that we undertook. And there was a case, um, the Scott case, Uh, from a number of years ago that really set out all kinds of factors. Things like, did the doctor wear a white coat that had the hospital's name on it? Did the doctor use the equipment of the hospital and the staff of the hospital to fulfill his or her obligations to the patient? Are they a member of the staff? And all these seemingly small things, but that's what establishes agency. The hospital doesn't have to tell the doctor exactly how to do the job But the hospital has to control whether the job can be done.
1: And the doctor can't do that job on their own without the facility and equipment that the hospital provides for their use. Absolutely. The doctor can't even walk in the door of
2: that hospital to perform services without the hospital accrediting that doctor to do so. And the hospital never would do that because it would be against the joint commission rules and they wouldn't get paid and no one's risking that.
1: And the hospital is profiting from that physician providing services at their facility. Absolutely. And normally, anybody who's been,
2: unfortunately, in the hospital, you'll get bills from the hospital, but also a a random bill from a radiologist or from a surgeon or from an anesthesiologist. And while that doctor, in, in the Jefferson case, the radiologist did bill separately, so did the hospital for the staff and the equipment for the actual ct scan than the radiologist bills for reading the ct scan so in jefferson the summary judgment motion was written that said you know this doctor was not a w-2 employee and i got out the statute and as sometimes happens in state legislatures that the folks that are writing the laws largely aren't lawyers and so what you can do is sometimes read it really carefully and find flaws and loopholes. And that's what we did in that case. The statute did not define, quote, employed physician. So again, the statute says, unless the doctor is an employed physician, the hospital's not responsible. Or that's paraphrasing, but that's essentially it. But employed physician wasn't defined. And so I went back into case law and the Scott decision and where it said, employment is a matter of all these factors. If the principal or the hospital controls the work of this person, then for all intents and purposes, they're employed and are responsible for their actions. So we went through that case. The trial court granted the summary judgment. I tried the case against the physician. We settled that case after two weeks of trial. I think I've told that story before. We pursue the case at the appellate level against the hospital. The appellate court reversed the trial court's decision, sending it back down, saying, no, Amy gets an opportunity to prove agency under the Scott decision. And so as that case, you know, went on for two more years, Erica, you get involved and we get real close to trial and then the hospital pays. And then our legislature looks at that and it was like, "Now, wait a minute. They found a loophole, so we're going to stuff that, and then passed a bill that said, "No, no, no, <laughs> let's define employed employed physician and it's someone who basically is paid directly by the hospital." And that became effective in 2017. So now we live in a world. All you listeners, most of you probably know this. If you're lawyers, especially if you practice in the kind of area that we do, but if you go to the hospital. And uh, you have a CT scan or an imaging or any kind of imaging, and that gets screwed up. There's negligence. There's medical error that happens there. Your only recourse is against the physician. The hospital has no liability. Now, you tell me if you think that's fair. I don't think it is. It's not fair. That's Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> it just
3: aggravates me every time we have to you know, face this. And I'm so happy that you explained what the practical impact to this change in the law means, Amy, because nobody is gonna understand the practical impact until they are sitting in our office with a devastating injury due to negligence, finding out that that's the way it is. This might be the most important, one of the most important topics that I would encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast on to share with everybody they know, especially in Missouri, what the impact is, because it impacts everyone, because it impacts people. It doesn't matter what side of a case you're on. Negligence happens. Malpractice happens at hospitals, and there's no one left to foot the bill for the error when this law gets put into place.
2: Right, and to put a finer point on that, you do have your case against the doctor, but typically physicians only carry a million dollars in coverage. And there are no laws in place in our state that say, okay, well in exchange for relieving hospitals of all liability for any negligence that happens at the hands of only their physicians who aren't employed, we're going to require higher limits of liability for physicians. That only seems fair because the whole point is we want to compensate people who are injured by medical errors. Oh, no, no, no. There's none of that. So for those of you listening who think, well, you can go against the doctor. I mean, you still have that. We're talking about injuries that far exceed a million dollar policy limit. And, If that's all there ever is going to be, that million dollar policy limit, because the hospital has no liability, then you're going to have lots of injured people, terribly injured people who are not compensated for those injuries. And that is not a fair result. It's not a just result. And again, you're more preaching to the choir oftentimes, but it shouldn't be the law in this state. Amy, I briefed this issue and
3: successfully uh, won the motions for summary judgment against the hospital because of a specific caveat that, quite frankly, is no longer going to be an argument to be made in a lot of cases because of the dates of negligence. Obviously, are going to be later and later after 2017. We're kind of talking about the pre 2017 definition and then the post the 2017 on definition of employee, and there's a really well thought out opinion by the Eastern District that says, no, it is a substantive change because it changes someone's ability to bring a lawsuit. So if the right is vested, if someone's right is vested to bring the lawsuit prior to that amendment happening, then you have to use the pre-2017 definition, which includes not only whether the hospital controlled, but had the right to control. That small piece, the right to control, played a huge part in our argument on the two cases I'm referencing that, again, Amy, to your point, involved very serious injuries to children that a million dollars wouldn't even touch what they need for the rest of their life due to these errors. And one of the most significant things that came into play was that the right to bring the lawsuit vested before that change happened. That's the first prong that you have to meet. And second is to show that the hospital or the medical facility, you know, 99.9% of the time a hospital had the right to control the doctor. It's important to note that right to control because in our cases, Amy, it came down to your case, like that Jefferson was used in conjunction with that statute to talk about what does the right to control mean? And Jefferson alludes to the factors that you needed to show but man, after that case got done, I was just thinking in my head, every person who comes into our office after this time frame, they have to use this new definition that essentially means you come into the hospital and you're going to be capped with whatever
2: the doctor's insurance has, you know. That's right. And patients aren't told that. Patients don't know that. It's not an intuitive thing to think about, that you can go to the hospital and have a medical error committed there and have no right of recourse against the hospital itself. So I agree. I think what you're suggesting is that if there are cases still out there (laughs) within a statute of limitation, which really are only going to be minor cases, minor as in babies, pre-August 28, 2017, then the agency applies. The agency analysis, the control, the right to control applies, so please, please, please don't miss that. If your case accrued after August 28, 2017, at least as of right now, we're stuck with the new employed physician scenario. But look, you know, as with everything, we're fighters and we'll we'll do what we can to chip away at that. But right now it is it is what it is.
0: Is this an issue just in Missouri or how many other states do we know have done away with agency in this way? I
2: don't know. I like to think that Missouri is, you know, basically one of the worst states in the country when it comes to medical malpractice litigation. But What about I know, Louisiana? I know. I have friends <laughs> in other states that remind me it could be worse. And so I, I acknowledge that. But, Megan, I don't know exactly what the table is
0: on that. In response to this change in the law, is this where negligent credentialing came from? And I know Amy can probably speak to what that claim is. Yes. And as we discussed a few episodes
2: ago in the Fraser trial, I believe one of the unintended consequences of the employed physician statute is the rise of a negligent credentialing cause of action, which is an effort by firms like us and and lawyers who represent folks in medical malpractice claims to hold the hospital accountable despite the employed physician statute, arguing that the physician was not competent to be at the hospital that day, to perform that surgery, to read that film, to administer that anesthesia, that the hospital fell down on its duty to protect the patient by ensuring that the physician was competent to perform those duties. So that's a, a newer area of law. And as we talked about in Fraser, there's one Supreme Court case in Missouri that is very complicated and confusing. So we'll see if there's any help on that. But yes, Megan, when we hit a brick wall, you can do a couple of things. You can stop and go home or you can try to climb it. And so one of the things that we do is we try to figure out a way to scale that wall.
1: What you're talking about is a new way that we are alleging medical malpractice cases, which is kind of taken from other areas of law that are pretty common. So for example, in my trucking cases, I will often sue the truck driver as well as the employer. I have claims against the truck driver and the employer together as defendants, which are based on the legal concept of vicarious liability between the truck driver and the trucking company, meaning the trucking company is on the hook for the conduct of their employee while on the job. And I will also have what's called direct negligence claims against the trucking company, which are claims for negligent hiring, negligent supervision, you know, negligently maintaining the vehicle or the equipment that they gave the um, truck driver to use. And it's the same concept, if you will, just... In that scenario, the hospital is the trucking company and the physician is the truck driver. And so it's direct negligence claims against the hospital for the way they've interacted with the physician. And they still have a duty if they are enabling someone to, say, perform surgery in their facility with all their equipment to use reasonable care in who they decide is allowed to be in that room. This is an extreme example, but it it's the idea that, you know, no one would agree that it would be okay for a hospital to allow a person who is not a medical doctor to perform surgery in their OR. Now, that sounds hope. crazy, but that's where the concept comes from. And gosh, I wonder if that case is out there where a doctor oh. was not, you know, or a person license was not active, yet a hospital was letting them perform surgery. I'm certain exactly that that is out there exactly and that's why the legal framework for those claims exists because it sounds like an outlier but if it happens the law in every concept of fairness should provide for that claim to be brought in the scenario that
2: you introduced the trucking scenario why would you need to sue the trucking company directly for direct negligence
1: why isn't it enough just to sue the driver because it's based on different conduct. So the injury happens in one event, let's say, in a collision with a truck. But there's different conduct that caused that person to get there. One is the truck driver's actions. How did they operate the truck that you know caused the accident? The other is basically credentialing, if you will, a commercial driver. And companies are the gatekeepers to who they allow – to drive for them, just as hospitals are the gatekeepers of who they allow to operate in their OR, who they allow to read scans, taken on their equipment. And so you would bring those other claims, the direct negligence claims, because they're based on separate conduct. And the other concept, at least in Missouri, and this differs a little bit in each state, is that if the conduct is so outrageous, a trucking company may not be on the hook for their employee's punitive conduct, meaning, you know, say they were high on cocaine or something, and, you know, technically their insurance policy excludes actions that are based on illegal conduct, which, you know, you could qualify that as that. The conduct of the trucking company, who maybe knew that that person was a drug user and had other drug violations on their commercial license if they allowed that person to drive, that is separate conduct that could be found to be punitive conduct that the trucking company would be responsible for. So there's a lot of case law out there that says the principal or the employee is not responsible under a theory of vicarious liability, meaning I'm responsible because you're on the job for punitive. But They are responsible for their own punitive conduct. Okay, I got it.
2: So if there's a trucking accident, let's just take the example of the truck driver maybe wasn't doing anything all that bad at that very moment. Maybe they just looked down and rear-ended someone versus being high or texting or something more punitive. But the employer, the trucking company that allowed that driver on the road that day had Ample knowledge that this person was a terrible driver, multiple infractions, multiple violations of rules and regulations, to the point where a jury would look at the driver and say, well, he just looked down for five seconds. That's negligence, but maybe not punitive conduct. But they could look at the trucking company and say this guy was dangerous he'd had four different accidents he'd had 20 tickets he'd had a hundred violations and that company should have never let that guy on the road that day that led to the injury to the plaintiff right
0: yeah it comes down to basically foreseeability i mean we had a case that we just recently handled where the trucking company was on the hook for negligent hiring. It wasn't a case of drunk driving or or driving on drugs or anything like that. It was a kind of what you were explaining, Amy, a, a simple collision that happened because he wasn't paying attention and he the driver merged into our client's lane. But we get into looking into his records and... This person was previously fired from a job for having too many driving infractions, and there were excessive records from that previous company showing each infraction, and it was the same thing over and over and over again. I think there was like 24 instances of this having... This similar conduct having happened in the past. And we were able to show that the company that hired him got his previous records, knew of all these infractions. And so in hiring them, it would have been foreseeable that he would do that again and cause the exact type of accident that he did. Got it.
2: I think that makes a lot of sense. Because at first I was like, well, kind of the same scenario. Just sue the doctor. Why would you need to sue more than one person for the same injury? And the answer for a trucking case is a little bit different than the answer for a med mal case, but it's equally as important that the principal, if you will, (laughs) be allowed to be held liable.
3: Erica, you gave the example at the very beginning of our discussion about whether you're driving to a deposition or you're going to get lunch with your friend. And in the realm of trucking cases, it's not always so cut and dry. And It was comical in our case when I would, well, you should just explain why it wasn't so (laughs) cut and dry with the driver in our case and whether or not they were on the job. And it led to some pretty interesting oral arguments that had everybody laughing
1: in the courtroom. (laughs) All right. Before I tee this up, I want everybody to get out a pen and paper, and I want you to count the amount of times I'm about to reference cats. Yes.
0: (laughs) I got
1: it. Here we go. (laughs) So, when we're analyzing agency issues, you know, at the beginning of the case, a client comes in and we hear that they're in an accident with a driver. And in this particular case, it was with a pickup truck and a motorcycle. Okay. Some lawyers may think, you know, okay, well, we're going to sue the driver. That is the tip of the iceberg of the analysis and the stones you have to turn over to make sure you haven't missed something. So, in this particular case, our client was a motorcyclist driving down. Down an outer road on a highway, and a pickup truck takes a left in front of the group of motorcycles, and several of them crash. As we got into the case, we learned that the person who was driving the truck worked for the largest winery in Missouri. And yes, California and Sedona, we have a wine industry in Missouri and it is thriving anyway. <laughs> so the Norton grape is the yes, uh, wine grape of Missouri. Exactly. So we learned that so we immediately know there's an employer involved. But the analysis doesn't stop there because this accident happened about 1145 a.m. And early on, the defense attorneys told me on the side, like, well, you know, we're disputing vicarious liability, meaning that he was on the job because he was going to get lunch. And I said, "Okay, no problem. You know, we'll get to his deposition. We'll find out what there is to find out. So what they were referencing was a concept, an exception to vicarious liability called frolic and detour. (laughs) You ready for the first cat reference? My next door neighbors, who are law professors, name their two cats "Frolic and Detour." No. Yes, because they're amazing. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> anyway, wonderful. so so this goofy little phrase "Frolic and Detour" explains that you know common thing that happens that during your workday from your nine to five, you may go to lunch with a friend and you are off the clock, or you may, on your way back from a deposition, in my example, stop at Target real quick and pick up, you know, your shampoo for your personal use. And that would be a frolic and detour from your day. And that kind of cuts off the connection with vicarious liability. There's also the coming and going rule that when you're driving to and from work, although your purpose of that trip is to go to work or return from work, that is for the most part accepted from vicarious liability as well. So what we found out was that this driver driving the winery's truck had gone to lunch at Burger King. And then there was a little grocery store right by the Burger King. And he goes into the grocery store and he picks up a case of water, some burritos, and a three-pound bag of cat food. (laughs) Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) that case of water... And the burritos are for the shared refrigerator. He is the vineyard manager, and the laborers on the vineyard work for him. He often stocks that refrigerator with his personal money, because that was part of the analysis, too, was he getting reimbursed by his employer for these snacks that he was providing. He did that with his personal money, but it was, you know, to kind of contribute to the morale of his workers, you know, being happy, having something to drink, quick snack, and also... The cat food was for the winery cat, (laughs) (laughs) who was a stray. And they brought into the winery office where the laborers, you know, keep their lunch, you know, stop in for a break during, you know, their long day. And they cared for the cat there. The cat lived there. I was asking questions like, does the cat have a litter box in the house? (laughs) You continue to feed it? Does it chase mice anymore? Or does it rely on the food that the winery employees are giving it? (laughs) Guys, this was all part of the analysis, I promise you. So basically, When the defendants filed a motion for summary judgment saying that the employee was not in the course and scope of his employment, we were looking at all, and there's a ton of case law about this, where employees are doing something that seems like it's in their off time, but it is for the benefit of the workplace. And in this case, it was buying cat food and snacks for the employees and the company cat. So when we deposed the corporate representative of the winery, which is the second generation family owner of this winery, we were cross-examining him with Facebook posts of cats that the winery had put on their Facebook page of the winery cats. And the defense attorneys were gaslighting me the whole time. And so was the corporate rep saying like, no, those are just feral cats. We don't care for them. We don't, you know, it's the country. There's lots of feral animals. True. But then on an attorney meeting, Amy alerted me to the coffee table book called Wine Cats, Which is an entire coffee table book devoted to the winery cats that wineries keep for a historical purpose. They used to chase away mice in the like cast rooms or something. They are very important. Very important to the winery industry. Yeah. So this is not new. And to this and to my personal life. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So now this is the case. I'm sure I've talked about it before where it settled on the Sunday night before the Monday trial. On Monday, I was 38 weeks pregnant. I went into labor that night, like 30 hours after we resolved this case. And once I resurfaced from maternity leave, I got the defense attorney and Mary, both a copy of Wine Cats, (laughs) has a coffee table book, which I think he thinks is funny. (laughs) He does. (laughs) Yeah, he does. And another funny thing from that case, at the very end, they went ahead and admitted course and scope liability because we did overcome the summary judgment motion. And the judge said that whether the driver was in the course and scope, was going to be an issue for the jury, which actually meant that we would be putting on all this evidence of the winery cat. But they, you know, wanted to take out that issue from trial and basically, you know, choose their battles. So they admitted that the employee wasn't course and scope. And the judge just paused and looked at all of us and he said, man, that's one expensive cat.
3: (laughs) And I'll tell you, Erica, we talk on this podcast a lot about things that regularly come up with us being female attorneys and male attorneys. I have never spent so much time in a room or on hearings with very experienced male attorneys asking really particular questions about a cat's presence and a <laughs> yes. cat's day-to-day schedule what that entails and who's involved in it and it was very entertaining i have to say just listening to the questions we'd get on the zoom with the judge and the judge was he was great and he would just be like all right we're talking about talking about the cats again
1: yes yeah. we are <laughs> Well, and my favorite was watching your dad depose the corporate representative with the Facebook pictures of the cats, and he was asking about scratching posts that were in the background, and he's like, is that the winery office? Is that the scratching post for the winery cat? (laughs) I mean, it was great. It was was great. Anyway.
2: And um, just for reference to our listeners who love cats and (laughs) maybe wine as well. The Wine Cat's book is available on Amazon, wow. and I, I'm looking at it right now, and there's only 13 left in stock, friends. So well, get on it. Well, because
1: I bought about <laughs> like 10 of them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and pass them out to anyone who worked on the case. It is delightful. It's a delightful <laughs> book. Yes, yes. Anyway, so you know, sometimes we get bogged down in the monotony and the seriousness, and you know what other people think. Sometimes is boring aspects of the law. But you know, then you throw in a winery cat and a good deed like buying a bag of cat food, and all of a sudden you have liability for some extremely serious multi-million dollar injuries. Good work. Thanks. <laughs> So to wrap up our discussion on agency, thank you for listening today. We hope you have a better understanding of these concepts that, quite frankly, are part of almost every lawsuit that we file, at least part of our consideration set. And the legal analysis that goes into determining agency issues, whether it be medical malpractice, trucking cases, or any other cases are very important to any lawyer's practice. So thanks for joining us today. And you can catch us next Wednesday on Heels in the Courtroom. If you have questions or suggestions, email us at heelsinthecourtroom.law.
0: Thanks. Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you at comments at law. And if you love Heels in the Courtroom, check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. John Simon's The Jury Is Out podcast focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice and dive into the legal drama behind America's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription in Results Don't Lie. Subscribe today.